Hi there, and thanks for joining us. My name is Danae, and I'm one of the youth pastors here at Northview. If you're new and joining us for the first time, we encourage you to head to our website to find out more about the ministries and opportunities that we have. We have a couple of quick announcements before we get started. On June 23rd, we are having our virtual congregational meeting. Due to current circumstances, this meeting is gonna be available online and for members only. If you would like to attend, please head to our website to register. And if you have kids at home, make sure you check out our online children's service. We are thankful to have Andrew, Jerry, and the band leading us in worship today. So let's join them as we sing in worship to our God. Psalm 100 says, shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. And I live 
our series in Esther with Pastor Ezra. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Esther chapter 5. Wow, this is different. So I guess this is, this is what we're doing these days, hey? This is Jeff's table. Like it. Anyway, imagine you lived in a foreign country and you and your family had moved there. Circumstances forced you to move to this new country where you'd have to assimilate. Now, they are not accepting of your Christian faith. You're different. You believe in a strange God, according to them. Um, you eat strange food, and your culture is basically not welcome to this new country that you live in. So you and your family are trying to assimilate. You put your heads down, you're working hard, you take your kids to school, you talk with them and tell them this is the appropriate conduct here, just don't stand out, just be quiet and just do what you need to do, focus on your schoolwork, and you and your spouse are out there trying to make ends meet. So you get a job and you start moving up in management, and before you know it, you're one of the higher-ups in this new land that is now your new home. And you find yourself having access even to the ruler, the prime minister, the president of this new country. Now, you haven't yet uh, identified yourself as a Christian. That is still very private and very undercover, so to speak. And so there you are schmoozing with the elites of the, of the land and enjoying yourself. But you're also aware that there are other Christians who live in this new, in this country. But those Christians are meeting in small gatherings, underground churches, and so on. So one of them reaches out to you one day and tells you that, hey, you know, these underground churches are being persecuted. And a lot of Christians are being dragged into prison and so on and so forth. And so they are pleading with you because you have this limited access to the president or the rule of the country. They're asking you to be so kind as to bring their plea before the king and ask the king to, to ask the king for justice. So they're asking you to speak up for them. Now you have a dilemma. The, the, the dilemma is this. In order for you to speak up for these individuals, you may have to out yourself and actually say, this is who I am and I am a Christian, which might mean that you might lose your position of authority in this new land. And that might mean then that you would lose the comforts that you're used to, that you've now become accustomed to, your house, your car, the vacations, the pay. Things would look different for you. The question for you today would be this, would you do it? Would you be willing to risk everything you have so as to speak up for your persecuted friends or your persecuted tribe? Would you be willing to speak up for the oppressed? You see, this is the place that Queen Esther finds herself in. Last week, we went through Esther chapter 4, and it ended with this massive cliffhanger. Mordecai, the queen's cousin, had come to the queen and informed the queen that there was an edict that had gone out that all the Jews in the land were to be killed on a specific day. Why? Because the king's right-hand man could not stand Mordecai. Mordecai was not being submissive. He was not honoring this man called Haman wasn't honoring him at all. And now, because of Haman's ego and pride and his anger toward Mordecai, Haman had decided to issue an edict in the king's name that all the Jews in the land need to die on a specific day. And this is a big deal. 
And so now Esther, in order for her to bring this plea before the king, she recognizes that she'd have to out herself as, as, as a Jew, which means then that she would also now have to speak up against Haman, who's the king's right-hand man, and that might possibly mean her losing the crown, but just not the crown, but she might lose her head. Why? Because the king had a law that if you approach him uninvited for any reason, you might very well lose your life unless you find favor in his eyes and he extends a golden scepter. So now Esther asks Mordecai to get all these Jews in the, in the city to fast for her for three days. And then after three days, she was hoping now to go and present herself before the king. So we are in day three in Esther chapter five, where now we want to see, will Queen Esther actually present herself to the king? So let's read this text. We'll enjoy the story um, and the nuances that are in it. But then at the end, we will also learn two things. We'll aim to learn two things. We'll learn something about Haman, the king's right-hand man, and we'll also learn something about Queen Esther. So let's read uh, Esther chapter 5, verse 1 and following. This is what it says. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal, thr on, on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the, golden, the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Now, this is, this is really interesting where uh, we find Queen Esther now approaching the king. This is the second time in this book where we see Queen Esther approaching the king, um, approaching King Xerxes. The first time she approached the king was in Esther chapter 2. And in, th in this particular episode in chapter 2, she was uh, one among many young women who were going to be paraded before the king because he was looking for a new queen. He had just kicked out Queen Vashti, and now he was looking for a queen, one who would be more submissive and one who would listen and obey orders. And Esther now along with all these other women, had to go through these beauty treatments and makeup and all this for a whole year before they would be paraded before the king and then he would pick the one he wants to crown as his queen. So this time around, Esther has a big ask. But now we see in the story here, there is no uh, annual, like year-long um, beauty treatment or just massages and all of that stuff. No, what we see is Esther has been engaged in a fast for three days. And then on this third day, she puts on her royal robe. There is no seduction here. She's putting on her royal robe and then she went and she stood. This, these two words here, she put on her royal robe and stood in the inner court and stood, meaning she's now basically breaking the law. Why? The king had to summon you. You don't just show up before the king. Showing up before the king, it was a law that King Xerxes had in place. You show up before the king, uninvited, you're basically taking your life into your own hands. And so Esther chooses, makes a conscious decision to break the law and come and stand in the inner court in front of the king, because she had a petition here. 
And then, of course, the king looks at her and she finds favor in his eyes. And how do we know this? He extends this gold scepter to her. This means you can approach. And so she comes and she touches the scepter. And now here we can say, her life has been spared. But the question is, has it? You see, that is just the first hurdle of a number of hurdles that Esther will have to go through before she actually shares the reason why she wants to see the king. So let's keep reading here and see what happens. Verse 3, then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given you. If it pleases the king, Esther uh, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now, what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to a banquet I'll prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Now, in this section, there are a number of things that come to mind right away. So Esther has just won the king's favor. He extended the gold scepter. She's come. She's touching it. Haman is nowhere to be seen. And the king asked her outright, Esther, what can I do for you? Even half the kingdom, what's your request? I'll do it for you. So you would have expected right then, then Esther would tell the king, you know, waste no time. She would tell the king, king, this is the request. My people are being persecuted and this is what's going on and this is what's going on and Haman is the one responsible and so on. But this is not what Queen Esther says. What does she say? Hey, king, you know, I would like you and Haman to come over to a banquet that I'm preparing. So why is she inviting Haman to come along? I mean, would you, if you were in Esther's shoes, invite the, the enemy of your people to come to a banquet that you are preparing because you want to tell the king what's going on? Would you invite him? Well, Esther chooses to invite Haman to this banquet. And then what is interesting as well here is we see that the king also says, hey, Esther, ask whatever you want. Even, even up to half the kingdom, it will be yours. Now, that is not to be taken literally. In the ancient world, kings usually spoke like that when you came with the request. And basically, that was just to show that the king is a very generous person. And of course, King Xerxes, who was just full of himself, basically, wanted to show and demonstrate that, you know what, I'm a generous and wealthy king. I mean, just see the lavish parties that this guy throws in chapter one. So he's a very boastful, very, um, very uh, uh, prideful, I would say, king. So here he asks his queen, yeah, ask, and I'll tell you. Anyway, so Esther decides to invite the king and Haman to this banquet. They go to the banquet. They have a wonderful time. The wine is flowing, to which the king will turn to Esther and ask, hey, Queen Esther, what is it that you want? This is the second time the king is asking, but this time Haman is there. But then there is a very interesting response that Esther gives. Esther says, hey, um, King, this is my petition and this is my request. If the king regards me with favor and if it pleases the king to grant my request, to grant my petition, um, why don't you 
have yourself and him and come to another party tomorrow, another banquet that I will throw for, for the two of you tomorrow. Come, and then there I will tell you my request. To which, again, we are left wondering, why is Esther now procrastinating? Why is she not just sharing her need right, right up front? Now, Haman is in, the, is in the room at this point. Why isn't she not sharing? Is she getting cold feet? Is she calculating what she was going to lose? Here's Haman, the hate of the Jews, sitting right here, the guy who had issued this ed- edict. And then, what if I tell the king... To, to have mercy on the Jews. This would mean that the king would have to rescind the edict. Now, what if this king who is so pompous and prideful, what if this king feels like withdrawing the edict will make me look weak and maybe it might expedite the death of my people? Is she pondering this? What will the king think of her and, and, and uh, how, he, how will he now look at her when she outs herself to be one of the Jews. See, this is King Xerxes we are talking about. He decided to kick out Queen Vashti because she did not come to twirl in front of all these guys whom he had drunk. And so she lost her crown. So does this mean that I'm also going to, I might lose my crown if I tell the king that I'm a Jew? So there's a lot on the line here. There's a lot at stake. For Queen Esther, is she getting cold feet? And I would suggest actually not. If you look, taking a closer look at verse 7, you will see what Queen Esther says. Verse 7 says her, her response when the queen, when the king is asking for, for her request, her response is this. My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request. Let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet. I will prepare for them. So in other words, king, if you really hold me in high regard, and if I found favor in your eyes, and if truly you want to meet my request, then how about this? How about you show up tomorrow to this banquet? And when you show up tomorrow to this banquet, then I'll tell you my request. In other words, King Xerxes, if you show up, to this banquet tomorrow, that will be an indication to me that you are prepared to give me what I'm asking for. What a strategy. Now, why is Haman being invited to this little party? And I would suggest this, Haman being the second most powerful person in the kingdom would probably have had some eunuchs and some workers in the palace who were in his pocket, so to speak. People who would just keep him in the know. I mean, he's the second most powerful person in the kingdom. So a lot of things would, a lot of information would be getting to him. So if Queen Esther would be, would uh, proceed on sharing with the king when Haman is not there, sharing with the king what her need was, chances are one of these individuals would have taken word to Haman, and then Haman might have concocted a response, a reply of some sort, or would have twisted things in order to get what he wanted at the end of the day, and that is the destruction of Mordecai and all his people. And so Esther wanted Mordecai close, and in particular in the room when she actually tells the king what her request is. She's not being scared. She's not getting cold feet. She had purposed 
to follow through on the mission. And that's why she went and stood right in front of the king. Now, the story takes a little bit of a shift in chapter 5, where now we, we are told a little bit more about Haman. So let's keep reading verse 9. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. Of course, he has been schmoozing with the king and the queen, for that matter. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, he restrained himself and went home, calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she invited me um, and she invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. So here we have Haman after banquet number one, all excited, all in high spirits. And why is he excited and in high spirits? Because he's feeling now that he's now really in the inner circle. Now he's probably one of uh, the king's royal family. The queen has this special uh, request she wants to make of the king, and the queen wants me, Haman, there to witness this and to be a part of this conversation. This is a big deal. And maybe he's feeling like, man, his feet are now a little deeper under the dining table because he's now dining with royalty. So he's feeling all good, maybe on his horse, leaving the the palace on his way home. And then his eye sees Mordecai sitting there. Mordecai is not rising up. He's not acknowledging me. He's not bowing down. Nothing, showing no fear. And Mordecai is just seething, but he controls himself. Why? He's in public. And then secondly, Haman recognizes that there is this day that is coming. There's a day that is coming. This edict went out. A day is coming when all these Jews, including this Mordecai, he'll be done. He will hang for all this that he's doing to me. So he goes home and he calls all his buddies and his wife and he begins to brag about how he has all this wealth and how he has many sons. Now, why does he include many sons? See, in the Persian Empire, the king would reward men each year. The man with the most sons would get a gift from the king every year. Why is this? Because the Persians regarded it as the greatest proof of manly excellence to be a father to many sons. And so this was Haman, who had many sons. He had 10 sons. And so, of course, he was bragging about how, of course, he has many sons. So he was quite the man. And how he had been elevated by the king to positions of authority. And so he was feeling all good about himself. But then he then remembers like, yeah, but all this means nothing to me because of that Mordecai, that Jew who's sitting at the king's Gate. Now, my question to you is this. If you had friends, friends um, who were like Haman, a friend who has everything in life, he has a good job, a wonderful family, a great place to live, 
the holidays, the vacation home, all of it. And yet, and yet he was just angry about this one person who was not giving him or her the recognition that they feel they deserve. And they were just seething and just bad-mouthing and speaking against this person and, and wishing destruction to come upon them. What would you say to your friend? I'm sure most of us would say, hey, you know what? Why don't you just let it go? Let it go. You have everything. You got a good job. You got a good vehicle. You got a good family. You have the vacation, the money, everything. Just let it go. I'm sure that's what most of us would say to our friends. But what, what does this group that's surrounding Haman, his advisors, his buddies, his wife, what do they say? Look at verse 14. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits. That would be about 75 feet. And ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. And then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman and he had the poor set up. So in other words, Haman was up to here with Mordecai. And he was like, this guy I've got to eliminate. He is just absolutely an eyesore to me. And so he has this 75-foot pole set up so that he could have Mordecai impaled on it. And he would have to ask the king, hey, can I get this guy impaled? And whatever reason he'd give the king, it is possible the king would say, yeah, sure. Why? He's the second most powerful person in the kingdom. Finally, he gets to get rid of Mordecai. So now this is the end of Chapter 5, the cliffhanger. So the question then here is, what do we learn? What do we learn from this remarkable story, this just fascinating story? Movies can be made out of this story. What do we learn? We learn two things, one about Haman and one about Esther. So what do we learn from Haman? What we learn from Haman here is the perils of idolatry, the perils of idolatry. So what is his problem? This is a man, as we have said before, has everything. The world is literally at his feet. He has status. He has authority. He has pre- prestige. He has wealth. He has many sons, 10 sons. And yet, and yet, and yet, he's absolutely bothered by this insignificant guy called Mordecai, who's sitting at the king's gate. Mordecai is nowhere near rich as he is. Mordecai is basically a nobody, but Mordecai was not acknowledging or approving of Haman. Haman is just seething because this man is not bowing. What's going on here? What is the root issue, the root cause of his anger and frustration? I would say the anger and frustration are just fruit. They're just the presenting problem, but there's a deeper issue, a deeper theological issue, if I may say so. Let me illustrate what I mean. So I'd like you to imagine, of course, we are in this um, COVID-19 pandemic season. And now, unfortunately, we are unable to meet as we usually meet. You would be seeing me live uh, preaching this message, but now I have to be in a studio and a table with lights and a camera here and a camera there and all the rest of it. So here we are in this situation and I'm preaching this sermon. So if I was to preach it live, 
So at the end of the sermon, uh, some pastors, maybe myself included, would want to hear people say, yeah, the sermon connected and the points were really great and it was a good sermon. And of course, if I take that to heart where every sermon I preach, I am not just preaching so that I can communicate the word of God, but I'm preaching so that I could get the accolades from people where people come and say, oh, pastor, that was a great sermon. Now, if someone come and said, hey, you know, that application didn't really work. Now I would go home quite um, disappointed and maybe angry. Well, that person didn't really get it or, uh, or I go home disappointed that people are not thinking positively about me. And so if I don't get this affirmation, then I am disappointed and I'm frustrated. And so my wife would come and say, hey, what's going on? Yeah, the sermon didn't really connect. I'm just feeling bad. I'm feeling lousy on a Sunday afternoon. And so it's not necessarily because the sermon didn't really connect. See, there's a deeper issue. And what's that deeper issue? The deeper issue is my approval ratings before people. And if I feel like people are not approving of me and approving of my ability as a preacher, and they're not liking me. Now, that's an issue. So I'm now not concerned about whether the word of God went forth in great power. No, I'm, I'm more concerned about my own approval before people. Was I eloquent enough? Was I fluid enough? Was, was I like Jeff, as good as he is? And if I'm not, then, oh boy, people like him more than they like me. See, what the issue there is, it's idolatry. It's my own ego. It's my own pride. It's my approval. That's a deeper issue. So the frustration as to whether people said my sermon was great or not is not the issue. That's just a fruit. The root issue here is my own pride and ego. See, that's the idol. And many of us have the same idols. If you're a parent who has kids in sports, you're there, you're yelling at your kid, score the goal, make the play, go open, or I want my kid to play, I want my kid to play. Why? Because if your kid is playing and your kid is playing really well, all the other parents sitting on the stand will look at you and say, oh, wow, you know, that's your kid, great job, great job. And it's not, you're not proud of your kid per se. Yes, you are, but not really. You're more feeling good because you're getting the recognition because that is your kid, that is your seed. See, that's an idol. But if your kid doesn't get any playtime or your kid is not playing well and you're yelling at him or her and telling him, play, pass the ball, throw it or whatever, and they're not doing what you're asking to do and now they are totally, totally causing the team to lose and you're now driving them home and you're just riding on them. Yeah, you're riding on them not because you want the kid to play well. See, yes, you do, but the deeper issue here, the root issue is your own pride, your own approval in front of people. Isn't that the issue there? Because people will think of you a certain way. We are always itching and we are always fighting and striving to, be, to, to get the approval of others. And when they don't give it to us, we are so frazzled and so disappointed and so angry and so mad. And in some cases, we are wishing for that person's downfall. And this is basically what Haman is doing. See, there's a very interesting um, quote uh, about idolatry from Tim Keller. And I'll just read it slowly. And I'd like you to see if, you, if, if this quote speaks to you. Keller says, An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you only what God can give 
An idol has such control, such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children, or a career and making money, or achievement and critical acclaim, or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competency and skills, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I will feel my life has meaning. Then I will know I have value. Then I will feel significant and secure. Keller goes on to say, there are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. So here's a question. What are you worshiping? What are you worshiping? What is this thing that is more important to you than God? What is this thing that is absorbing your heart and imagination more than God? This thing that has you completely, that you would spend all your time and energy, your financial resources on it. This thing that you yearn and crave, saying in your heart of hearts, if I just had this, or if I just had that, then I'll feel that my life has meaning then I'll feel that I have value. Then I'll feel that I have worth. What is this thing? If it's not God, then it's an idol. And sadly, many of us have them. You have some idols. I have them too. And we need to fight against these, uh, these, these idols. You see, the gospel reminds us that our identity, our identity is found in Christ. The approval that we, be sh we should be seeking is approval from Christ. See, Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. I, Paul, writing, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So in other words, the moment I gave my life to Christ, the moment I became a Christian, the, the, the moment God opened my eyes and I saw the, the, the beauty of the gospel and I surrendered my life to, to God, at that moment, I belonged to God. And the life I now live in by faith, I live by faith. The, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. What does that mean? That basically means that Christ becomes my priority. That everything I do, I do for his glory. I'm doing for his approval. And yes, there'll be people who will not like me. You see, the, the reason why sometimes we, we fear sharing the gospel with our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers is because we are afraid of what they will think of us, our approval. Will, will, they, will they still like us? Will they still approve of me? Will they still appreciate me if I out myself? And the reason why I don't is because I'm scared. Scared of what? Scared of the approval. So question, isn't that an idol? Isn't that an idol? May we stand with Paul and say, I've been crucified with Christ and no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Let's get our identity from Christ. The second thing we learn very quickly here is from Esther. And we learn about courage to address injustice. Courage to address injustice. Now, at the end of chapter 4, when Mordecai had talked to, to Esther, telling her, go plead on our behalf. 
Esther sending Mordecai to, to rally the people to fast, this is what she says in verse 16. Go and gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will also fast as you do. When this is done... I will go to the king. Notice what she says. When this is done, I will go to the king. So mind made up. I will go to the king even though it is against the law. So she knows. She's staking things, matters into her own hands here. And if I perish, she says, I perish. If I perish, I perish. You see, she goes then in chapter 5, as we've seen. She stands Against the law, she stands before the king in the inner court, and then she's now willing to risk her prestige, her royal comfort, and the crown. She basically now just doesn't talk the talk, but now she walks the walk. She actually acts upon what it is that she now had purposed to do. She follows through on the mission. See, Esther was very thoughtful. She was very strategic and courageous, and she was willing to sacrifice personal comforts for the sake of speaking up for the oppressed, willing to lose all of it for the oppressed. She spoke up, Esther did, for the racially oppressed in her community and her society. Why? Because Haman hated that Jew Mordecai. Those are the words that come out of Haman's mouth. He couldn't settle because of that Jew Mordecai. And so in order to address that, he wasn't just going to deal with Mordecai. He was going to deal with all the Jews because they were Jewish and because it was Mordecai, who's the Jew, who's becoming insubordinate, who's not approving of me. So Esther then spoke up for the racially oppressed and sought justice for them. You see, Esther now will set an example. She's setting an example for us, particularly in our day today. I'm sure you're aware of all the, the, uh, uh, the rallies and the marches and the protests that are happening in North America, in the United States, predominantly in, in Canada as well and around the world, where people are standing up and marching and speaking up against racism and in particular racism against black people. And racism is a big deal. It is a big deal. People need to stand up and speak up against racism. And again, I will say, as a black man, I will say, racism is not just against the black people. Yes, black people have experienced racism. Terrible, terrible stories and, and, and things that we have had, absolutely. But it's not just limited to black people. During this corona pandemic, uh, we've been watching news stories on TV about stuff that's happening in Richmond, in Vancouver, where we have a huge Asian population and this graffiti being sprayed on their businesses and their homes and old people are being shoved in the curb and they fall, off, fall down and hit their heads and bleed and are in critical condition and things like this. And these are sad images and sad stories where people are riding the bus and a little 17-year-old girl is, is beaten up just because she's Asian. All these are racist acts that we ought to speak up against. We ought to speak up for the oppressed and say no to prejudice. 
we also need to speak up for the marginalized, the abused and the neglected, and we need to do so peacefully. We need to do so peacefully, we need to do so persuasively while we are listening to stories of others, stories of victims of these, of these acts, and then we stand with them and say no and do our best and do our part to try and eliminate this kind of behavior in our community. But make no mistake, yes, racism is one big issue that needs to be addressed and rightly so, but it's not the only issue. It's not the only justice issue, injustice that we need to address. There are many injustices that are happening in our society as well. So for instance, poverty, and homelessness, that's, an, that's a justice issue that we need to be speaking up against. There is intimate partner violence. There are so many spouses right now who are suffering significant abuse, physical abuse in many cases, from another spouse. Why is this going on in our community? And who's speaking up for those who are oppressed in their homes as we speak? Then, of course, there is the plight of um, refugee claimants, the asylum seekers, and the horror stories that many of these individuals have to share with, with us as they're seeking asylum in Canada. And yes, they have got to go through the processes and things like that, but these atrocities are happening in other places. Terrible atrocities happening. And who's speaking up for people who are there, people who are incapable now of running away and getting out? Who's speaking up for them? Who's speaking up for them? What about the thorny one? The one that has two strong opposing voices? The rights of the unborn child. You and I both know, man, this is a hot button issue in our community, in our society today. But the unborn child, the voiceless person, the voiceless Canadian, or the voiceless human being, I'm thinking of Bushin around the world, who's speaking up for them? This is a justice issue that we need to speak up. Now, make no mistake, make no mistake. These are thorny issues. Some of these issues are contentious. And speaking up for them will be costly. They will cost you and I dearly the moment you open your mouth speaking about these issues. They'll cost you dearly. And so you may wonder and say, okay, so why would I speak up? Why would I rock the boat? Why would I tip the apple cart and, and speak on these issues? Why would I want to sacrifice the comforts that I have? You see, the reason, the reason you would want to do so is because the gospel will compel you to do so. The gospel will call us, basically, to care for the sojourner, to care for the widow. The gospel will call you to care for all these, the unborn child. The, the gospel will call you to care for all these folks. So... Why should we inconvenience our lives? Because the gospel calls us to do so. And not only that, notice what Jesus Christ did for you and me. Jesus Christ did so much for you and I. He died on the cross for you. He humbled himself, took on human flesh, walked the earth, died on a cross because you and I were in bondage and sin, destined for wrath. And he saved us at great personal expense. And because Christ did this for us, we should also be willing to do the same for others. And this is the reason why we ought to do this. We ought to be the good Samaritan 
as Luke 10 will teach us. We need to be like the Good Samaritan at great personal cost. Be willing to serve and love the other. I will end with Malachi 6. What does the Lord require of you and me as a Christian? What does the Lord require of us? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Let us pray. Father, I ask that you would help us, Lord, to live our lives in a manner that is pleasing to you. Thank you, Father, for the story of Esther, and thank you for the great example that she is to us, particularly in our times in our day. And Lord, I pray that as we ponder these things, that we'd also be searching our hearts and ensuring that, Lord, the idols that we have, the approval that we are seeking from others, Lord, the things that prevent us from standing up and, and living our lives in a manner that is worthy, Lord, I pray that you'd help us put those idols away and that we would find our identity in the gospel. Fill us with your spirit and help us to live in a manner that is pleasing to you. In Christ we pray. Amen. Another way we worship is by giving back to God with what he has so richly blessed us with. We are so grateful for everyone who has continued to give during this season, including those who aren't a part of our regular church family, but have joined us online. There are many ways to give at Northview. You can go to our website, northview.org. You can text GIVE to the number on the screen. Or if you'd rather, you can drop off a check at our Downs Road campus during office hours. And of course, if you want to support our ongoing community outreach, we want to encourage you to give an extra donation to our CARE Fund. Now let's go back to Andrew and Jerry and the team as they lead us in another song of worship.
grave Worthy is the Lamb who was slain Worthy is the King who conquered the grave Worthy is the Lamb who was slain Worthy is the King who conquered the grave Worthy is the Lamb who was slain Worthy is the King who conquered the grave Worthy is the Lamb who was slain this morning, we want to send you out with a blessing from God's word, which comes from 1 John. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Have a great week.